What's up, folks? Happy Monday. This is The Emulsion, and we are on episode 12. 12. Great. Uh, I'm your host, Justin Kana, and just in case this is your first time joining us, this is a little show where I chat restaurant and chef and food and fine dining news that mattered to me in the last week or so. I bring up some non-industry stuff towards the end, so you can make a little list of stuff you want to move on to when we're finished here whether it's industry or non-industry, because I feel like it's important to get out of that bubble sometimes. But links to all the stories that I cover can be found in the show notes below wherever you're listening or watching. Unfortunately, I got a little overzealous last week announcing that we'd have a guest today, but him and I actually had to reschedule for next week, so I'll definitely hype that up as we get closer, uh, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter. But uh, of course, ask me, uh, go ahead and submit some questions uh, as that gets closer and once I reveal who the guest is, so stay tuned for that. Also, a little segment I want to throw in at the start of the show, which may or may not be cool or not, is um, just sharing with you guys what beverage I'm drinking, because I almost always have a drink next to me, because uh, it's a lot of talking. Podcasting is a lot of talking, so you got to keep keep the whistle wet, I guess, as they say. Today, um, and this is special for the people that are watching, not listening, sorry if you're just listening, uh, so Facebook Live and YouTube people, um, pretty basic IKEA mug, nothing special. These actually stack into each other because the handle's way up here, which is pretty nice. But what I'm drinking is a Ethiopian coffee, which if you watch my le- most recent Dish of the Day episode, that's the one that I used for that. It is actually a different coffee than the one that I used in that episode. I have multiple Ethiopian coffees around my house, which is... Probably my favorite coffee, if I had to pick like a single origin location. Um, I'm not super, super familiar with all the coffee regions, but of the ones that I've tried, I keep going back to to Ethiopian style coffees. Um, So yeah, I always have a different beverage around me, Uh, so I'll just share that with you guys as we start the show. Uh, Okay, let's get into today's stories. First up is some exciting cookbook news. So State Bird Provisions is coming out with a book, and that was announced this week. So State Bird, of course, is the San Francisco restaurant known for offering modern, American, California-influenced food served in more or less a dim sum style. So they'll bring food around the restaurant on carts with advertised prices on little pieces of paper or little stands and you pick what you want and they kind of check it off on your little paper that they have on your table and you settle up at the end. Now I have to give a little bit of a backstory on this place because this spot holds a special place in my heart and that's one of the reasons why I'm covering this story. The first time I ever tried to go to State Per Provisions, uh, it was more or less my first day landing in San Francisco when I moved, uh, when I was staging in California before I even moved there. And the person that I was going to eat with literally almost had a heart attack standing outside of the restaurant. His heart rate shot up to like 200 and something beats per minute. Uh, So I had to drive to the hospital, ruining my meal, ruining it. Just kidding. It was actually really scary. So let's not have that ever happen again. But second time, me and this dining companion of mine went back again. And if you haven't been to State Bird, they, they do take reservations just like a normal restaurant, but they also... I'm not sure if they still do this. They have a they had a bar area, um, kind of like towards the front of the restaurant, where you could kind of wait in line. And when they open at five, if you were you know well enough in advance, if you had a good enough seat in line, you would go ahead and get a seat at the bar. And we were like the cutoff people, the like when you're at a 
theme park and uh you know like nobody like the people that just go ahead of you get on the roller coaster and you don't we were like the cutoff people so the two people ahead of us got to go and they were like oh sorry you can't you can't get in and we were waiting for like 45 minutes and they literally said you can stand if you want to us me and my dining companion and we're like fuck it let's do it so we stood there basically for the entire meal uh and we ordered everything and it was amazing and Upon leaving, and this is the first time I've ever, ever done this to this day, I made a reservation for like a month in advance as I was leaving. Like I went up to the host stand and I was like, I want to come back. When can I, when can I come again? So fast forward, I had eaten there another time after that second reservation. So this will be three times that I've eaten at Stapered Provisions. Uh, But just last month, I went to their sister restaurant called The Progress, uh, which is more of a family style focused spot. And they also blew me away. So super tasty, super fresh, quality food served by great people, and the space is always buzzing. So that's always, um, it's super fun to be there. And that's that that aspect itself is something that we'll cover in story number two here. So just remember that um, being in a buzzed, buzzing space. But my point is, and where I'm going with this is, they're doing a book, and that's why I wanted to cover it with all their signature dishes, more or less, included in with of course, the beautiful photography and recipes for everything. So all the recipes that you've more or less been waiting for are going to be there in this book. So it's definitely going to get ordered by me. I'm pretty picky about my cookbooks these days. I haven't honestly bought one in a while. I'm trying to think of the last cookbook I bought. It was probably the Relay book, uh, but that was back in Norway. It was at least a year and a half ago, maybe almost two years ago. It was the last cookbook I bought. That's a little bit sad. Um all of mine have been like locked up in storage, so I'm kind of just content having all of my books here next to me on my bookcase. Uh, Stapered's book out is out in October, so if you're itching to get your hands on it, you can pre-order it for pretty cheap. I think it's like 20 or $23 on Amazon. I've got the link in the show notes, uh, and that link also has, like, of course, the press release that they did, as well as uh, a recipe for preserved lemons for your convenience, which is... You know, like they could have, they could have, you know, released a cooler recipe, in my opinion. In anticipation for a book as cool as Stapers' book, they could have come out with something a little bit more intriguing than just preserved lemons. Uh, but that's that story. Next up, we've got some more exciting news from Food and Wine, the publication that is normally well known for their best new chef list uh, that they come out every year. Uh, But they released another list of theirs. Actually, they're calling it their Restaurants of the Year 2017 um, in May, which is a little strange, right? But as I do, there's more research being done here. So I checked out their numbers that they did with this list. And basically the story is they did six months of research, apparently traveling 45,000 miles of traveling through hundreds of restaurants in 20 cities and 48 states. So this is considered a restaurants of the year list but it's strictly an american list that also excludes alaska and hawaii uh the full list is listed below in the show notes that you can kind of peruse but the ones that i want to talk about here are the ones that are just crushing it this year they're relentless they they just keep showing up and we keep talking about them not only on the show but i keep reading about them and uh those are of course olmstead uh he is a friend of the show greg backstrom the owner and chef there, and that's the only spot on the list that I've actually had the pleasure of experiencing. So that definitely made the list. Um, but these other restaurants I either haven't been to or I just want to chat about them because they have been uh, so hyped up and been talked about uh, in the in the in the most recent months. So Royster, 
in Chicago, a meal that I wish I could have had on my trip there last weekend, but uh, they got their Michelin star this year. Of course, being part of the Alinea family, they're going to they're gonna be crushing it. Plus, they found their way onto this Restaurants of the Year list, so well done for them this year. Tartine Manufacturing, a spot that not only got some James Beard uh, nominations this year, but also has all the buzz. Apparently, everybody told me that I should have gone there when I was in San Francisco a month ago. Regrets. I have regrets. Le Cuckoo, uh, best new restaurant, New York City from, uh, well, I guess it was best new restaurant. It is in New York City. Uh, that, that was the James Beard Awards that they won. Uh, but they also found its way onto this list, so bravo for them. And then, of course, a spot called Tusk in Portland that I will hopefully be able to try out in July. I have an event planned in Portland in July, so we'll see what happens with that if I get a chance to go eat there and experience that menu. Again, the full list is down in the link in the show notes, uh, but a little bit more about my opinion on this list. I find this list to be a little bit of a, it's a list of trendy spots is I guess how I could put it lightly. It is serving food in places that are like, oh my God, have you been to so-and-so? Oh my God, you have to go. You know, places like that. That is more or less my impression. And that's not to say that they're bad, but a lot of these places are built by people who don't have huge followings or don't put that much out there, more or less. They're super just into building a space where they can serve food and make people happy. And that is honestly a testament to the power of word of mouth in this digital age where, you know, everybody is so concerned about how many Instagram followers or Twitter followers or whatever. Uh, But I think it just puts puts a huge impact on like if you can manage to provide people with great experiences um, and have great people doing that, people are more likely to tell their friends that they had a great time and that's where these places kind of like thrive and grow and continue to survive. So bravo to those who have won. It's also a super smart move from food and wine as like a marketing standpoint. None of these restaurants on this list have chefs from their best new chefs list. Don't worry, I checked. Uh, so this is just a great example of what I call selling the sawdust, which is a concept that I have from, I want to say it's Gary Vaynerchuk, maybe it's Tim Ferriss, um, but basically what they're doing is they spend a lot of time and money traveling and eating at these places to find these the their best new chef list, and with that, they of course eat at a lot of other places, so um, whether it's not, like if you look at the list, Every single, there's a different blurb from different writers uh, and authors on each uh, restaurant. So it's not just one singular person going to these places, it's it's more than one. Um, So for me, when you put out out a place called Restaurants of the Year 2017, it's just a super smart move uh, of content and clickable, shareable copy, basically. Have you been to any of the places on the list? Let me know in the comments. I'd be interested to know. Uh... Let's move on to a piece that I particularly enjoyed reading, just because it's one of those examples of getting two sides of a story, which of course I'm super, super into anytime I can get that. Coffee drink. Did anybody, um, does anybody remember my ASMR (laughs) episode of this show? I think it's episode two on the emulsion, where we just talked about people making food sounds on the internet. That was for all my ASMR fans. Uh, but it's a story that has two sides, is getting back to the point. And social media getting involved in the story and a rising from the ashes kind of story. And that's from a piece that the New York Times did called What Hospitality Means to Times Critic Pete Wells. 
So if you haven't read Pete Wells before, not only does he do restaurant reviews at basically the most highly regarded publication in the world, if we're talking about newspapers, but he also does a little bit of political stuff, which of course we won't get into because that's not what this show is about, but his writing is really well done. He's very articulate, but I really personally enjoy his style and his honesty. He will just put as much emphasis on uh, like a casual falafel spot as he does per se. I mean, he, he became synonymous for knocking per se down from four stars to two stars, which is a little bit crazy. Uh, but the story that this article talks about is when he reviewed Union Square Cafe. Danny Myers, of course, flagship, I guess if you would call it that, he used that restaurant to then build Union Square Hospitality Group, which is a mover and shaker in its own right. But the story here is Frank Bruni uh, gave Union Square Cafe two New York Times stars who was the critic before Pete Wells was. So Pete did his review process there, awarded the space three stars, which is great for them. But the reason, the the, the way that the story gets interesting is, and I'm uh, this is going to be kind of like a Justin Reads Along uh, segment of the podcast, because uh, I think it gives a lot of context, and it's also not even that long of an article, so I'm hopefully saving you a little bit of time. This is a link that you won't have to click on and read uh, later on. But Frank posted a photo of the iconic lettuce salad on Instagram is how this story kind of comes about. And the caption of that photo was, Union Square Cafe knows its customers, end quote. And apparently someone commented on this photo on Pete Wells's Instagram. Hey, Danny Meyer, tagging Danny Meyer. Uh, can you please let Pete Wells know you serve guests, not customers? And Pete Wells's response was, and I'm quoting from the article now, Quote, in New York Times style and in my head forevermore, thanks to the gentle hammering of our copy editors over my five years as a restaurant critic at the Times, a guest is someone who doesn't pay. And when a friend, like, for example, when a friend has you over for a beer, you're a guest. And when you eat in a restaurant and surrender your credit card at the end of a night, you are a customer. End quote. And then he goes into details about the fact that sometimes uh, it's become a little bit of a cliche. Uh, for example, when you're at Chipotle and you hear, may I help the next guest, please? Whether or not that's exactly 100% hospitable, he's not sure, I'm not sure. I kind of giggled at it because it's something that I use kind of on a regular basis. Um, again, it's something that's just been gently hammered into my personality. Uh, but he then goes on to talk about his emotions, more or less. And if he's had a bad day, he will never take it out on a dish or the staff or his review of the restaurant. However, when something the restaurant does affects his mood, that, in his opinion, is relevant to the review. And that is something that he seeks to kind of like emphasize in this in this particular article because of the hospitality that was displayed to him on, in his experience at Union Square Cafe. So I'll read the next part of the article here. Quote, After I'd explained the newspaper's position on guests and customers, my Instagram friend wrote, quote, Did your experience at Union Square Cafe feel like a transaction? Your review didn't read as such. Perhaps the Times can get with the Times and realize word choice can gravely and greatly change the industry. End quote. I'm still quoting the article. No, it didn't feel like a transaction, but it was one. Believing otherwise would be like believing that David Copperfield had caused the Statue of Liberty to cease to exist. Everyone over the age of five knows that the statue was still there. David Copperfield made it invisible, though, just like Union Square Cafe made the machinery of commerce invisible. 
That's the trick, end quote. Ultimately, I was left with this line from the piece, and I'm convinced above all else, it's the reason why we're seeing a shift in dining these days. And I'm quoting the article again. Quote, the servers at Union Square Cafe don't, you want, don't want you to be impressed. They want you to be happy, end quote. So here's where it gets super interesting to me, right? It's, it's, it's finding a way to make people happy first. I think that's super, super important. And then impress them upon leaving, like leave them with an impression, I guess, is what more or less the goal is. And that that is what truly makes something great. And that's four stars to me. That is like three Michelin stars to me. That's all time to me. And that's really tricky, right? Uh, I'd be interested to hear your 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 thoughts on on something like this, as far as hospitality goes. What your opinion on it is? What what makes great hospitality to you? Um, so go ahead and leave those in the comments below, wherever you're watching. I'd be interested to hear because it's different for everyone, right? Um, so next up is a piece that I I personally had shared around my personal social networks over the weekend. And that is another New York Times piece, but it's all about uh, Thomas Keller this time, the chef with an empire more influential than most, I would say, here in the U.S. And it's taking, it's talking a lot about his legacy, what's next for him, and more or less how he's personally feeling these days. Full disclaimer: I have, um, I did my culinary school externship at Per Se, his three-star spot in uh, New York, for five months, and then I was at the French Laundry for almost a year and a half. So I do have a connection with his restaurant group and I know quite a little bit about how how it is to work in his places, um, the good and the bad. Uh, but he's definitely been through a lot as a chef, Thomas Keller has, and he's done a lot and there's no doubt that he's going to be all time as far as great American chefs go. But he hasn't cooked in a long time. And his days now, and the article says this as well, are spent doing events and planning for his new 200-seat uh, restaurant in New York City that he's calling the Tack Room. Uh, that's in Hudson Yards, and that was actually being worked on uh, when I was at the French Laundry almost three and a half years ago, which is a little bit crazy. Uh, mentoring other chefs, not only in his restaurants, but at projects like the Bocus Door. Uh, that's also another way that he spends his time. But you can't cook forever, right? Like, it's being like an athlete. Roger Federer isn't really going to, like, he's going to have to stop playing someday. But that's where it starts getting even darker in this article is where they start talking about passing on the French laundry, which is, of course, super sad, right? Uh, and I'm going to quote from the article now. There is oh, there is no obvious successor, and the French laundry has yet to establish an identity independent of Thomas Keller's. And now I'm quoting Thomas Keller. The French Laundry is Thomas Keller, he said. My job is to change that. Little single-tier action, right? That's super sad. Uh, but of course, there's been like declines in prestige along his entire restaurant group, right? The world's 50 best keeps dropping French Laundry in per se. Uh, whether or not we are really going to respect that is an, an, another story entirely. Uh, per se currently holds two New York Times stars, uh, but both places still have three Michelin stars, respectively. French Laundry just had its big kitchen remodel. We talked about that on this show. Uh, that's exciting, no doubt. But what struck me the most from this article was something that Chef Keller said, and that was, quote, I pushed against convention when I was young. And then you realize there's no reason to push against things. There's no value in it. Hard work and dedication to craft will right all wrongs. And personally, this is where I have to kind of like take a step back and call 
bullshit on that, right? Like, the reason that he became the chef that he is is because he did push against convention, right? Like, whether he likes it or not, I think there needs to be both. You, you can, like, you only, you, you not only need to cook better than anyone else, but you also need to cook differently and you need to serve differently. And and it sucks to hear one of the guys that, like, I looked up to for, like, the majority of the first part of my career saying something like that, especially when, like, I'm in the position of being young and pushing against convention and, like, it sucks to hear that, does it not? I'd be interested to hear your, your thoughts because, like, his point is that hard work and dedication to craft will right all wrongs, but it's 2017. It's not enough anymore, in my opinion, just to cook good food. There needs to be more than that. And if you've been to any any of these places or seen any of these places that serve really, really amazing food and they end up closing, you've seen this firsthand. So I would really be interested. Like there, there. What I'm saying is there needs to be both, is my point. There needs to be some sort of a pushing against convention. There needs to be you doing something different. But at the same time, you need to have that dedication to your craft and put in the put in the work. I'm not I'm not saying there's an easy way around it or you can be trendy AF and, and succeed. I, this is another point where I didn't be interested to start a conversation about it because, you know, it, it, it's... Uh, it's one of my heroes saying something saying something like this. And the article itself ends super sad by by saying, and I'm quoting the article now, if he could, he would still be cooking there every night. This is referencing Thomas Keller. It's where life is simple and he is the happiest, but he knows he has a different job now. Quoting Thomas Keller now, I have to prepare myself to let go, which is very, very difficult thing for me. It breaks my heart, end quote. Ah, single tear again. All right, all right, all right, all right. Now that we're all super low on ourselves, super sad, let's transition into something that's a little bit uh, awesome, super awesome actually, and inspiring, and that is our non-industry story that we're going to go into. But first, I just want to do a little quick plug on the last DoD episode that I did, and it's more or less all about a dish that didn't work. So that's on the YouTubes, uh, linked in the show notes. So that's a great place to go after this. Uh, Super quick. I think it's a a little bit less than five minutes on that episode. Uh, But it's all about a dish that I wanted to do for a pop-up that I did a week and a half ago, and it ended up not working out. So I had to kind of last-minute change, get a little bit creative. Um, So I've also kind of um, been focusing on bettering the quality of my videos, using more microphones, using better quality stuff, color grading the videos. For anyone that's into that content creation chat, um, so that's of course all for your enjoyment, but I've got my first U.S. cooking class today as well. Uh, I need to head over there just after shooting this podcast, so I'm excited about that. Um, I did a ton of those cooking classes back in Norway, but this will be exciting tonight. Bring it to a different market and see what happens. Uh, that is happening in Bellevue here in Seattle, so if you're listening and want to do a class with me, uh, if you've been put in touch with me, uh, whether we just meeting or, you know, this is your first time listening to my podcast, but you're in the area, go ahead and find a way to contact me and I'll make sure that that, that can happen for you. Alrighty, the non-industry story today that is ex- inspiring and exciting and motivating is all about Nike. And that is the project that they put on as, yes, a marketing play, but also just being a super cool brand, Nike can do this stuff. And they called it hashtag breaking two. 
So it is all about taking the idea of a two-hour marathon and testing the human's limits on it in the realm of basically creating a perfect environment and a perfect shoe for that kind of human human feet, I guess. They took three athletes known for being world-class on marathon running and basically gave them everything they need to compete for something like this. So of the runners, uh, Iliad uh, Kipchoge was far ahead of the rest, a guy who himself has world records. He literally lapped another one of the athletes on the Italian racetrack that they ran the race on. Uh, but the shoe that Nike gave these runners was called the Zoom Vaporfly Elite, uh, which is pr- has some pretty cool tech in it. It, it. it is basically promising a 4% better performance on an athlete's effort, basically. So with Iliad's personal best at two hours and three minutes, that 4% should have put him in a pretty close, you know, kind of realm to that mark. However, when you're putting yourself through those kinds of uh, conditions and, you know, strenuous points of activity, you can't always guarantee yourself something like 4%. However, what's cool about it, and the reason that I'm talking about it as much as I am, is they've live streamed the entire event on Twitter. So that was a really cool concept and something that I really enjoyed watching. Uh, I think I tuned in for the last like 45 minutes of it. I I honestly didn't even know what was happening. I was like just scrolling through Twitter and everyone was tweeting about this thing called Breaking 2. So I checked that out. I personally really enjoyed watching it and, you know, because you you, you have the video, right? And then you have underneath everybody commenting. So some people doing funny stuff, some people being like, oh my God, this is the most inspiring thing I've ever seen. And some people being like, this really makes me want to go run and like everybody's involved in the conversation as opposed to how I guess live TV is normally when you know you're watching it on your TV and then during the commercial break everybody kind of like goes to Twitter and then just tweets about whatever just happened and makes jokes about everything like that. So for me it was cool to kind of see something that is potentially the future. Uh, I did a little bit of research on this as well. Twitter just announced a ton of fascinating partnerships with other different live broadcasted shows and events and uh, other content. So you can hopefully look forward to a little bit more video stuff on Twitter. That would be an interesting pivot for Twitter because I know a lot of people um, proclaim Twitter to be a little bit tired as far as social media goes. Um, I definitely use it to follow some of my favorite people online. However, as far as like where people post the most stuff, Twitter has kind of fallen off of the, the wagon on that. But the punchline of this whole entire thing was that the goal was for the one of the athletes or, you know, ideally more athletes than just one to complete the marathon in less than two hours. The whole thing was called Breaking Two. Uh, Elliot Kipchoge finished at two hours and 25 seconds. He was 25 seconds too slow. And I was just, I was literally sweating just watching. I was so amped up. I've never run a marathon, but I did long distance running in high school. And seriously, there's such a huge difference when you're watching someone run and telling them to go faster, just be like, come on, come on. And when you're actually like tired AF and telling yourself to go faster. So I have complete empathy for him when everyone is telling him to go faster. He was literally on pace to beat the record up to the last maybe like three or four kilometers, I think. And then it was just like, he's 19 seconds behind, he's 27 seconds behind, and all of a sudden, he crosses the finish line. And, you know, it was a little bit heartbreaking to see, but regardless, uh, like I mentioned, his his personal best before was two hours and three minutes, so he shaved that off himself. 
Regardless, it was super fun to watch. It was definitely a remarkable human achievement, and it was my favorite non-industry thing this past week. The link that I actually have in the show notes is a link to a video that Vox did where they all kind of get on a treadmill and try to run as far as they can at the pace that he ran for two hours, and a lot of them can't even make it a full minute at that pace, which is pretty funny. So with that, this has been episode 12 of The Emulsion, and regardless of whether you're watching live on Facebook or if you're on the podcast on iTunes or maybe you're on SoundCloud or YouTube, I really want to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or want to be a part of the conversation, I ask you to leave a comment about today's question of the day. Did we have a question of the day? It was all about hospitality today. Um, I didn't have a, you know, this gets a little bit organic sometimes, a little bit spontaneous. I didn't have a question when I wrote the show today, but you know, I got curious and I like to ask you guys some questions. So go ahead and let me know what hospitality means to you and what a great hospitality experience is for you. Uh, and if you have a question, uh, go ahead and ask it. I'll be sure to answer it. Um, I don't get a lot of questions, so you can pretty much guarantee that yours will get answered. Share this podcast on one of your social networks. I know there's someone you work with or someone you know who could use a little bit more industry knowledge in their life, uh, but go ahead and tag me and use the emulsion hashtag, and I'll be sure to say hi to them and to you. And oh yeah, we have that interview next week, so be sure to stay tuned. If you're not following me on Facebook or Twitter, make sure you do that so you can get your questions submitted for the interview show. I will hype that up as it gets closer. Sorry if you were looking forward to the interview today. Hashtag scheduling life. That was a little bit rough, but I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Thanks again for watching the show, and thanks in advance for leaving your questions. I'm Justin Kana. Have a good one.